This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. she was busy because she speaks a lot and about a year and a half ago when I asked Rachel Naomi Remen if she could speak at our conference last year in Sacramento she said I would love to speak at your conference but we're going to have to plan at least a year ahead if we're going to do that so a year and a half ago this date was set because of Rachel's schedule Rachel Naomi Remen is a pioneer in training physicians in relationship-centered care. She's been in private practice of psycho-oncology for the past 20 years. She is co-founder and medical director of the Commonweal Cancer Health Program in Bolinas, California, which was featured on Bill Moyer's PBS special, Healing in the Mind. Many of you may have seen her on that. She is a former faculty member of the Stanford School of Medicine. She is currently assistant clinical professor of family and community medicine at the University of California in San Francisco. She has a new book out, which is wonderful. It's already on the bestseller list in the Bay Area. It's called Kitchen Table Wisdom. After her talk, she will be signing books in the back. And we are really starting from strength with this first speaker. Rachel. stand up here and know that you are not alone. It's an amazing occasion and a great blessing. 
come this morning um, to talk to you about something that is very dear to my heart, which is a dream of the healing of the healthcare system. A healthcare system is always a clear mirror for the society that it serves. If you want to understand a society, look into its healthcare system and you will see there all the strengths of the society and all of its limitations, its flaws, and its illusions. I'm still, still crying. Um, the wounds of a society are the same as the wounds of its healthcare system. Whatever heals the healthcare system, whatever change of perspective, attitude, whatever shift of values is needed to heal the healthcare system, that change of perspective, attitude, and values is what is needed to heal the society in general. That shift of values and perspective will heal us all. I've been a part of our healthcare system for 35 years. As a matter of fact, um, I was born into it. In two generations of my family, there are nine physicians and three nurses. As a child, there was a time when I thought that people became adults and doctors as part of the same process. <laughs> I have also been a patient for 42 years. I have Crohn's disease, which some of you know is a chronic intestinal disease. Uh, it affects the intestine and destroys it, and destroys the joints as well. And I have had abdominal surgery, major surgery, seven times in these 42 years. So I have had the opportunity to personally watch the quality of health care erode and deteriorate until health care has become the marginal thing it is today. Reinventing the system, restoring it to its integrity is my passion and has been for many years. For a long time, I thought what was missing from high-tech healthcare, high-tech medicine, was the concept of healing. That if only we could restore healing and the laws and relationships of healing to the heart of the medical enterprise, medicine could become whole. I no longer think this is so. I think it doesn't go deep enough. The wound in our system is deeper than this. The wound in our culture is deeper than this. We have run at Commonweal a training program for the doctors who serve people with cancer since 1991. And these oncologists, radiologists, internists, OBGYN people, these 63 doctors have shown me that what is really needed is not to create a medicine based on the laws of healing, but to restore to the heart of the medical enterprise 
the spirit of service to life. This is radical. And actually, this is a perfect time to consider such radical change. Medicines in crisis. Anyone who reads a newspaper recently, anyone who has recently sought health care knows that medicine is in crisis. And crisis, of course, is a time of unique opportunity. For 20 years, I have listened to people with cancer, people who are experts in crisis. And listening all that time, I've learned that in times of crisis, people instinctively reach for meaning. Meaning is strength in times of crisis. And the special gift of crisis is that meaning may become clear. The meaning of our relationships, the meaning of our work, the meaning of our lives may become clear, often for the first time. The meaning of medicine has not changed in 3,000 years. Only the strategies with which we try to fulfill this meaning have changed. The strategies distract us. They cover the meaning over. They cause us to forget it. But this is only temporary. For 3,000 years, the meaning of medicine has been the service to life. And this is what we will need to remember in order to survive this crisis. We need to create again a medicine that has the wisdom to recognize the power of the life force and the humility to serve it. This will require rethinking the very task and mission of modern medicine. Presently, medicine sees its task not as serving life, but as fixing life, manipulating life, outwitting it, controlling it, gaining mastery over it. That's not what service is about. We serve life not because it's broken, but because it is holy. Service has a capital S, like sacred does. Many years ago, about a year before I was diagnosed with my chronic illness, I was walking up Fifth Avenue in New York. I was 14 years old. And I saw two blades of grass growing through the sidewalk. They were green and tender, and they had broken through the cement. And I was astounded. It seemed like some kind of a miracle. I want to dedicate this talk to those two tender blades of grass to remind us that the power in them is the power in us all. Trust of life, trust of the life force, is not the long suit in a technological culture. It is not only doctors that don't trust the life force, that don't see it, that have no awe of it. Few of us really trust it either. And it's very hard to serve the life force in each other if we don't trust it. 
It's hard to serve something that we don't trust in our every cell. Let me tell you a story on myself about learning to trust the life force. Um, 1981, about five days after I had um, a six-hour abdominal surgery, the sutures that were holding my intestine together gave way, and I became gravely ill. By the time um, this was correctly diagnosed, um, I was uh, deeply in shock, right? medical shock. And I remember being pushed down a hallway at a dead run on a gurney, the lights overhead flashing by. My surgeon was running by my side. He was also my friend. And medical culture being such as it is, he was talking to me about my case as if we were two doctors discussing some mutual patient in the doctor's dining room over lunch. And as he pushed me down the corridor, he said to me, you know, in the presence of, of infection, we will have to close by primary intention. And filled with drugs and very ill, I remember thinking, primary intention? I used to know what that means. <laughs> and then, of course, events accelerated, and I lost it all. Several hours later, I woke up in the recovery room, giddy with the realization that I had once again survived. And with one fingertip, I could feel the big, thick bandage over my abdomen. It had been there so many times before. Comforted by that familiar bandage, I drifted off to sleep. The next day, a nurse came to my hospital room to change my dressings chatting to me, you know, she pulled back the bandage and I looked down, expecting to see what I had often seen there, um, actually five times before, which is a 14-inch incision held together by maybe a hundred sutures. But that is not what was there. Instead, there was a great gaping wound as open as anything that I had ever seen while assisting in the operating room. Okay. The surgeon's words came back to me in a rush, primary intention, but today I knew what this meant. It meant that in the presence of the, of the infection, the very deepest levels of the fascia would be closed and then the wound would be left open to heal on its own. I looked down at the ruin of my abdomen and I remember a wave of despair. You know, surely this was a mortal wound. How could something like this heal? And the nurse kept on chatting. She wasn't aware what had happened for me. And I turned my head aside and became despairing. And the next day she was back to pull the dressing back and spoke to me. I couldn't look at it. I absolutely couldn't look at it. And day after day, she would come back, pull the dressing back, change the, my dressings, and I, with my head turned aside, was waiting for the end. After a little more than a week, it occurred to me that I did not seem to be dying of this thing. <laughs> and maybe I was going to have to live with it. 
And this brought up, of course, a whole new set of concerns and obsessions, right? How would I live with this great hole in my front? Maybe after many years it would fill in and become a scar, you know, 14 inches long and seven inches wide. But until then, what kind of clothes could I wear? Could I fill it with cotton and tape it in? And after a few days of these kinds of musings, I decided that if I was going to live with it, I would have to look at it. So that morning when the nurse came in to pull back the dressing, I steeled myself and looked down, expecting to see the gaping great wound of ten days before. But it was not the same. Astounded, I saw that it was filling in at the bottom and was distinctly narrower. And then an extraordinary thing began to happen. Day after day, she would come to pull back the dressings and I would watch as this great wound in the slow, patient way of all natural things gradually became a hairline scar. And I had no idea how this was happening in me. I, a physician, had no control of this. But I certainly had a front row seat. <laughs> and of course, it was only then that I realized that I had occupied this front row seat since the moment I began medical school. The life force that I had witnessed in myself is our mutual birthright. And it can be trusted. We can serve life, all of us. But if you don't trust life, you become fixers and helpers rather than servers. And I wanted to say something very brief about the difference. When you help someone, you use your strength to help somebody of lesser strength. When I experience myself as helping, I'm always helping someone weaker than I am. When I help, I'm aware of my own strength because I'm using it. But I don't serve with my strength. I serve with my wholeness, with everything I have. When I serve, I become aware of my wholeness, and I have a greater acceptance of it. My limitations serve. My imperfections serve. My wounds serve. Even my darkness can serve. We don't serve weak people. We are always serving an equal. The wholeness in us serves the wholeness in others and serves the wholeness in life. Service is different than helping. Helping incurs debt. If I help you, you owe me one. All of business is based on these kinds of exchanges. Helping can actually diminish the life force in us. But serving like healing is mutual. There is no debt. I am as served as the person I am serving. The life force in me that, I, that is served by you as I serve the life force in you. It is a level playing field. Helping gives one a sense of 
power and leads to a sense of satisfaction, serving gives one a sense of belonging and leads to a sense of gratitude. Serving's different than fixing. Fixing is a form of judgment. When I fix something or someone, I see them as broken and I act on their brokenness. When I fix, I don't see the wholeness in life and I don't trust it. Judgment always creates distance. There is distance between me and someone I perceive myself as fixing. There is an inequality, usually of expertise, but service is not about expertise. Service is about being human. We all serve the life force. We can all serve the life force. The disconnection that is built into fixing makes it very difficult to fix and serve at the same time. We can only serve that which we are profoundly connected to. We cannot serve at a distance. Fixing is an experience of expertise and mastery. Service is an experience of mystery and surrender. A fixer feels causal. A server knows they are being used and is willing to be used by larger unknown forces. When you serve life, life strengthens you. That which uses you will often strengthen you. Fixing and helping, very draining, lead to burnout. Service is renewing. Service is renewing. The work itself sustains you. The work itself sustains you. You know, when we fix and help, we're often working on some specific concrete agenda. We may fix and help many different things in our lifetime, but we're always serving the same thing. Everyone who serves, serves the same thing. Everyone who has ever served through the history of time serves the same thing. We are servers of the wholeness and mystery in life and the wholeness and mystery in each other. The bottom line, of course, is I can fix without serving. I can help without serving. I can serve without fixing. And I can serve without helping. I have been fixed and helped over 42 years by many people who never saw the integrity of the life force in me. I want to say something very important. Only service heals. Only service heals. So the question is, how do we reach back past generations of fixers, helpers, technicians, and experts and retrieve the integrity of the mission of medicine? What gets in the way? Well, the training gets in the way. Our medicine is a reflection of our culture, and we're a frontier culture. We carry with us the values of independence, competence, and self-sufficiency. 
And so we have created a shadow. We have created a culture of isolation, loneliness, and distance. It's not surprising that doctors and other health professionals are trained to isolation as a high value. The distance in medicine is institutionalized into a dress code, into a language that is different from other people. It is codified into what is called professional and unprofessional behaviors. There is a general belief that truth can only be known at a distance. Well, truth can only be known up close and personal. Our professional behaviors separate us from truth. They separate us from people, from ourselves and our mission, and they are a great barrier to the service to life. And let me tell you a story about this, another story on me. This event just happened just after my first surgery, which was in 1967, and created an ileostomy for me. Those of you who don't know what that is, my intestine has been removed and I have an appliance that I wear attached to my side which gathers up my stomach juices and I change this every few days. I was 27 years old and single when this was done and I was devastated. The surgery saved my life, but I felt maimed by it. I felt separated from all the other young women my age. And this separation was emphasized by the people who came to tend my ileostomy. I didn't know yet how to take care of myself, and so experts called enterostomal therapists, who were also young women in their 20s, would come every day to change my appliance while I was in the hospital. And they would come into my room and they would don a mask, a gown, an apron, and gloves. And then they would change this appliance. And then they would take off the mask, the gown, the apron, and the gloves and very carefully wash their hands. This was not helping me reclaim a sense of the integrity of the life in me, a sense of my own wholeness or the strength of the life force in me. One day, close to five o'clock, a young woman my age came in carrying a tray. She was dressed not in a white coat. She looked like she was going out somewhere. She was wearing a silk blouse, a skirt, and heels, and in a very natural way, She asked me if it was okay if she changed my appliance. When I said yes, she went and washed her hands before she touched me. It's a very different thing. And then she drew from her pocket one of these appliances and without gloves, without a mask, without a gown, she simply removed my own old appliance and replaced it chatting comfortably to me all the while. I was stunned. I remember watching her hands. 
They were immaculately manicured and her fingertips were painted a very delicate shade of rose pink and she was wearing gold jewelry. And as I watched her hands, I could feel something come up in me and I knew that I was going to be able to do this. I knew this thing was going to be okay. Now her behavior is very unprofessional. You do not do these things with your bare hands. This is the way that I have changed my appliance, of course. I myself have changed it this way every other day for 30 years. In her willingness to touch me, she not only tended my body, she healed my wounds. What we think serves doesn't serve. We can't serve the life in people unless we're willing to touch them physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And I believe that is Mother Teresa's message. So interesting. These service, so intimate, may be so impersonal, often we don't even know that we have served someone. The life force uses us. I don't know this woman's name. This woman who made such a difference in my life, she probably doesn't even remember the, 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 the happening. She has no idea of the simple, natural way in which she gave me back my life. We may never know how profoundly we serve simply by our willingness to see ourselves connected in a spirit of service. All suffering is like my suffering, and all joy is like my joy. Service is not done by experts. We serve the life in each other. An expert is someone who has edited themselves in an effort to be of help, of use, and perhaps has become less than whole. Whole people have uncertainty, doubts, fears, wounds. They feel pain and joy. In front of a whole person, you need never feel ashamed or small or alone. Many years ago, when I was taken on a trip to Canada, we visited a graveyard, and I saw there a tombstone that has stuck in my memory. It said, here lies George Brown, born a man, died a gastroenterologist. <laughs> in my medical family, I thought this was a step up. <laughs> I know different now. The sort of distance that we have from life causes us to miss life and to see only its pain. Okay. Let me tell you a story. It's a story about a doctor, but it's actually a story about all of us. Um, I once had as a client a woman who had an extraordinarily 
extraordinary laugh. I mean, when this woman laughed, your heart opened. Right? And she was a great woman. And she had ovarian cancer. She was in her early 60s, and she'd led a very unusual life. She was physically very strong and an athlete, and she broke a lot of rules. At one point, she took all her children out of school and sailed with them single-handedly around the world. It's a kind of a Zorba the Greek kind of woman. <laughs> but the chemotherapy was very powerful. And it flattened even someone like her out. At the beginning, she would appear in my office totally bald, wearing these huge, wonderful earrings. And at the end of her chemotherapy, I appeared in her bedroom when she was so weak she could barely open her eyes. Throughout this whole dreadful experience, she was plugged into a Walkman playing what she called her chemotherapy music. And at first she would play the chemotherapy mu music only when she went for treatments. But later on, she would play it constantly. The cancer was not like anything she had faced before. She said some wonderful things about it. One of the things she said was, at the start I saw myself at the top of a ski run. It was a hellacious run. What I didn't realize was that I would have to make it on my knees. But make it, she did. And about a year after the end of her chemotherapy, when her hair and her weight and her laugh had returned, she gave a party for those who had helped in her healing. A hundred strong, we gathered in her living room to eat and drink and meet one another. And partway through this um, party, she stood on a chair and asked for silence. And then she spoke very movingly of the past two years, of her pain, her losses, and her despair. Each of us had been there for her in some way, and she thanked us. Very, very powerful moment. And then with a twinkle in her eye, she held up an audio tape and reminded us of her chemo music and told us it was a single piece of music that she had played over and over and over again all those months. She would play it for us now. I realized I had no idea what this piece of music was. Dropping it into her hi-fi, she turned the volume up full. Dropping it into her hi-fi, she turned the volume up full. There were a few seconds of silence, and then a voice filled with emotion shouted out, Praise God, brothers and sisters! And a blast of gospel music rocked the room. There was a moment of shock. And then a hundred people, friends and neighbors, sons and daughters, beauticians, taxi drivers, massage therapists and yoga teachers, nurses and cooks and house cleaners and lovers, we all began to dance. 
It was an endless tape. We danced for a long, long time. It was one of the great celebrations of life that I have ever experienced, and I still draw on it for strength. I was the only doctor there. When I asked one of the other physicians who were involved in her care why he had not come, he said he needed to protect himself from being hurt. To serve, we need to relinquish some of our trust of expertise and begin once again to trust life. Service varies inversely as expertise. Students, medical students, who are not yet experts, are on fire with the spirit of service. It shines from them, these young students. One of the most powerful things that I have had the privilege to do is to teach a course at the medical school called The Healer's Art, in which we bring together doctors who have recovered from burnout who have found again the meaning of the work, we bring them together with these young students and we see them catch fire again. There is a wisdom about life in the beginning. Before there is knowledge, there is the wisdom. You know, they say that perhaps when you die, your life flashes in front of you, the important moments. One of them happened to me in August, actually. I had been invited to go um, to the Fetzer Institute to teach a retreat for student leaders of the American Medical Student Association. 20 young people from all over the country. What extraordinary human beings. Extraordinary, extraordinary. We were in the third day of the retreat. It was about 9 o'clock at night, and I had been teaching for 12 hours. And I said, okay, folks, I'm going to bed, right? And they, with the energy of the young, were probably going to do what they did last night, which was to dance till one in the morning. And somebody said, because they had been given copies of Kitchen Table Wisdom, which is a book of stories. It's a book of stories about the life force. Um, Somebody said, would you read us a story? And you know, when you're... And I said, you know, without a second's hesitation, just as a joke, I said, only if you put your jammies on first. (laughs) Now, when you are leading a group, you have to be very careful (laughs) of everything. Well, they all got up. They went next door to the retreat center. They put on their jammies. They got pillows and blankets. They came back and they lay all over the floor in this meeting room. And I had been sitting in a rocking chair. Something said to me, sit here. And I sat in this rocking chair for the whole day. And then I spent a couple of hours reading bedtime stories about a dream of a medicine of wholeness to these wonderful young people who kept saying, oh, one more, read one more. (laughs) This is going to be one of the moments that flashes by my eyes, I know. 
I know it. I have a talk, of course, as always, that is too long. <laughs> always. So let me make a couple of um, adjustments. <laughs> Adjustment here or there. Okay, I think I can do this. Service is mutual. We serve the life in each other. And this is a very different relationship than the relationship that physicians are taught in medical school. And so let me tell you a story about a physician who is learning to heal this in this training program that we're running at Commonweal. Harry is an internist in a Midwestern clinic. And he returned to his clinic after one of our three-day workshops. There are five of them. It's a year-long program that each doctor goes through. Um, and the, the, the workshop was on the power of the intuition. And in this workshop, he had discovered that an awful lot of what he thought was thinking was really a certain intuitive strength he had. And he was very intrigued by this. So on Monday, he went back to his clinic, and of course, he runs the clinic. And as faculty, his job is to see patients who have no teaching value who have nothing to teach the younger doctors, who do not have a diagnostic challenge, right, um, or therapeutically are difficult. And one of these patients who he had seen every Monday afternoon was an elderly Hispanic woman in the end stages of breast cancer. She was close to 80, and there was no more therapy that was available for her. So as head of the clinic, he would see her every Monday, listen to how her week went, adjust her medications, make her more comfortable. And this Monday, he did the exact same thing. He adjusted her palliative regime, listened to her complaints. But at the end of it, this time, he decided he would take a look at her through his intuitive eyes. I call this getting a second opinion. <laughs> and he got an immediate intuitive insight. What Mrs. Gonzalez really needed from him right then was for them to pray together. Now, he was not a praying man. And so he began to sweat, and he went down the danger checklist looking for a reason to discard this insight. You know, would any harm come of following the insight? Would it delay treatment? Would it humiliate anybody? Would it offend anybody? There was no reason to, dis to discard the insight. So there it was. And being a man of great integrity, he turned to Mrs. Gonzalez and said, Mrs. Gonzalez, it might be good if we pray together. She looked at him and said, oh, doctor, and began to cry. Now, fortunately, he didn't do what I was trained to do as a medical person when a patient cried. He didn't call a nurse. <laughs> what he did was take her hands 
and simply receive her emotion with respect and wait. Okay? And after a while, she stopped crying and said, Doctor, that would be wonderful, but I am a Catholic. Can we kneel down? <laughs> he looked towards the door. <laughs> it was closed. He was on very unfamiliar ground, but he was in it already, and he decided to continue. And he said, certainly. And so in his white coat, he helped this elderly grandmother to kneel down in this tiny examining room, and then he kneeled down with her. And first in English, then in Spanish, she began to pray, and a calm settled over him. And stimulated by the sound of her voice, he remembered a prayer from his childhood. And when she had finished, he said that prayer. And then there was a long, comfortable silence. The old woman then reached across and touched him on the cheek. First in Spanish, then in English, she asked God to bless him and strengthen him in doing his important work. He says that he can still feel the touch of her hand even six months later. When things get tough, it strengthens him. It helps him. You know, we fix the broken, we help the weak, but we serve each other. The way I was trained receiving anything from patients is unprofessional. But the way I was raised, and almost everyone else in this culture was raised, to receive is a sign of weakness. What goes on in the medical system is a reflection of the larger culture. I would like to close with one last story, because as I said at the beginning, service opens us to a sense of the sacred. It opens us to the experience of mystery and awe. Life includes mystery. Mystery is at the heart of the life force. Medicine is a headlong dash for mastery, and we have overlooked the mystery, which is the stuff of being. The unknown. In medicine, we treat the unknown like it's a hemorrhage. It's some kind of an emergency. We have to make the unknown known as quickly cost-effectively as possible. We have to fill up that emptiness with a story. And so we tell stories that aren't true, stories like you have six months to live. When I was 15 years old, I was told that I would be dead by the time I was 40. I believed that. And I made many life decisions based on that. I've been dead now for 18 years. <laughs> my friend Marion Weber, who is my colleague in this work with the doctors, she's an artist, very, very, very gifted woman. And for her, the unknown is like the blank 
canvas. She sees it as an artist sees it, the blank canvas, the place of revelation. And we will know that our culture has become healed when we recover our sense of comfort with the unknown, our sense of awe. I am going to do something which I think is highly irregular. I want to read you a story. And I hope um, this doesn't offend anyone who says, God, I could have just read it for myself. <laughs> it's a story from the last chapter of this book on mystery and awe. It's called The Final Lesson. Sometimes the particulars of the way in which someone dies the time, place, even the circumstances may cause those left behind to wonder whether the event marks the healing of hidden patterns and personal issues and answers for that person certain lifelong questions. Death has been referred to as the great teacher. It may be the great healer as well. Educari, the root word of education, means to lead forth the innate wholeness in a person. So in the deepest sense, that which truly educates us also heals us. The theory of karma suggests that life itself is in its essential nature both educational and healing, that the innate wholeness underlying the personality of each of us is being evoked, clarified, and strengthened through the challenges and experiences of our lifetime. All life paths may be a movement toward the soul, in which case our death may be the final and most integrated of our life's experiences. When I met Thomas, he was over 70, a family practice physician who had been in solo practice for almost 50 years. Whole families, from grandparents to grandchildren, looked to him for help in their troubles, counted on his counsel, and called him their friend. He looked the part, gray-haired, kindly, his body as spare and gnarled as an old oak. At the time that we met, he had end-stage cancer. He could no longer get around without the constant flow of oxygen through a nasal catheter, and the previous month he had closed his practice. Until the last year, he had never missed a day. An astute diagnostician, he had come because he knew he was dying. He proposed that we open a series of conversations about his life. He had done some reflection in recent years, but felt that sharing the process at this point might be helpful in readying himself for death. Thomas felt death to be an unqualified ending to life. Raised a Catholic, he had left the church early and embraced science as the way to bring order to the chaos of life. It had not failed him. Yet life had intrinsic value for him, and he wished to examine and understand his own life and what it had meant. 
It surprised me that a man this altruistic, compassionate, and reverent towards the life in others, this awed by the beauty of anatomy and physiology, held no religious or spiritual belief. Curious, I asked him about the circumstances under which he had decided to leave the church. Open and frank about other details of his long life, he was reticent in the extreme about this. He had left at 16 over a specific happening. I never found out what it was. Thomas's major commitment was to his medicine, his families, their needs, hopes, and dreams. His devotion to them was absolute. Solitary almost to the point of asceticism, he had never married. Very early on in our discussions, I asked him how he saw his relationship to his patients. Looking at a small figurine of a shepherd with his flock that another patient had given me, he smiled like that. We spent the next few weeks examining the nature of his work and what it had meant to him. Thomas told me many stories of his shepherding and the life of his flock. We examined these stories together, sharing our thoughts and perspectives. In the telling and the reflection, he seemed to be unfolding a much deeper sense of what his life had meant to others and what he had stood for. In these discussions, he often used an odd Victorian word. They sheltered with him. All the while, he was becoming more and more ill. His breathing more labored. Eventually, I raised the issue of his personal isolation. Who did he shelter with? Who was the shepherd's shepherd? No one, he said, the words holding more pain than he had expressed before. It became clear he didn't believe there was a place of sheltering for himself. Shepherd, though he was professionally, Personally, he had become separated from the flock, a non-participant, a lost person. He seemed unwilling to talk much further about this. Puzzled, I asked him to make up a story about a lost lamb, and haltingly he described a lamb that had been lost for so long that he could not even remember there was a flock. He had learned to survive by himself, to eat what was available, to hide from predators. Does this lamb know that his shepherd is looking for him, I asked? No, he said. The lamb had done something very bad, and the shepherd had forgotten him. As a shepherd yourself, would you look for a lost lamb that had done something bad? He seemed puzzled. I reminded him of the young patient from the projects he had told me about, the one he had taken on as guardian from the juvenile courts, the girl who eventually went on to college. I asked him why he had gone after her and brought her home. Why she was one of mine, he said unhesitatingly. Yes, I said. There was a small silence. Then he abruptly changed the subject, but I saw he was deeply affected by the thought that the bond between the shepherd and his sheep might lie beyond judgment and was deeper than he had previously thought. 
We talked of many other things over the next months, and gradually the image of the shepherd retreated to the back of my mind. We spoke of childhood, manhood, lost love, and the richness of 70 years of living became apparent to us both. It had been a good life. Thomas was hospitalized once, and his health continued to worsen. Gradually, he became too ill to come to the office, and in the fall, I began to see him at his home. Hospice was called, and by the beginning of December, he had become so short of breath he could no longer speak. Somehow, he kept hanging on. The hospice workers were surprised by his endurance. One of his nurses told me she thought he was waiting for something. I thought perhaps she was right, but I had no idea of what it could be. His brother had come from the East Coast to say goodbye, and many of his patients had already visited and left cards and expressions of their love. On Christmas Eve, I received a call from his nurse. Thomas had been in a coma all day, and now he was having difficulty with his secretions. Would I come? As soon as I saw Thomas, I realized he was dying. His breathing, always labored, had become shallow and intermittent. The nurse with him was young and seemed a little uncertain, and so I invited her to stay as I talked to him. He did not respond in any way. We changed his sheets and made him more comfortable. Then we sat down together to wait. Gradually, the space between his breaths lengthened, and after a while, his breathing stopped. The young nurse seemed relieved. She called Thomas's brother, who had asked to be notified, and who said he would fly out the next day. He asked that she call the funeral director that Thomas had chosen, and she called him too. She called his oncologist, to sign the death certificate. There seemed nothing more to do. I stood for a while at the foot of Thomas's bed, thinking about him and wishing him well. Then I left. It was dark and had grown quite cold. Holding my keys in my pocket, I huddled into my coat and walked a little faster. I had almost reached my car when church bells throughout the city began ringing. For a moment I stopped, confused. Could they be ringing for Thomas? And then I remembered. It was midnight. The shepherd had come. You know, Restoring the awe of the mystery and the life force is simply remembering the lineage of medicine. You know, we don't have a great sense of lineage, we physicians. We have such pride in our new ways of technology and its power, we tend to see the ancestors as primitive and look down on them. But this may be wrong. The father of medicine, you know, was not John Wayne. 
The first medical center was called the Temples of Aesculapius, the father of medicine. It's been a direct lineage, a direct continuity with, let's say, the five buildings at UCSF, or even the buildings here at Stanford. They were five temples on a hill, the temples of Aesculapius, and people came from all over the known world to study healing, to be healed, and to heal. There's no description of these temples, current, you know, from the, from the actual time, but Cicero, writing about a hundred years later, notes that in the inmost courtyard of the temples of Aesculapius, the father of medicine, stood a statue of Venus, the goddess of love. The meaning of medicine has not changed in 5,000 years. For all of its technological power, medicine is not a technological enterprise. Medicine is a special kind of love. That kind of love, that love of life, is service. And reclaiming this lineage will be our strength and our healing, not just for doctors, but for us all. Learning to love the life in us once again. Thank you. take me for early morning walks at his cabin on the Klamath River. And we take these large canvas sacks with us. And upon the return of the walk, we have them filled to the brim with all kinds of great treasures. And we'd walk along in silence mostly. And when something caught my grandfather's eye, he'd make a real big deal out of it. And I'd always say, Grandpa, you always make a big deal out of an old rock or a bird feather or just some stone laying on the ground. And he'd say, those things were nature's gold. And we were the luckiest people in the world to find them. And he'd point out that if we came five minutes too early or five minutes too late, that feather would not have been there or it would have blown away, or the sun would not have been at the right angle to see that special rock. My favorite time spent with him on these infamous walks was what he called survival sightings. Now, it's not what you might think. 
Survival sightings were walks where we didn't keep our eyes on the ground watching for nature's gold, but we looked up at the trees. When we find a tree that he thought was the right tree, we would study it from all angles, even upside down. Talking was not allowed until every inch of that tree was critically scrutinized. Then the discussion would begin, and it would go on for an hour or so. And what we would talk about, what we would discuss, were all of the animals, people, objects that we saw in that one tree. I was, I was really good at this survival sighting stuff. And it was many years later before I finally asked my grandfather, what, the, what does this have to do with survival? By this time, he had passed his 87th birthday, and he was having difficulty seeing much of anything. He had emphysema, he had cataracts, you know, he was a mess by then. But his answers never surprised me. because he always talked in strange ways. And I knew he wasn't being silly. His eyes were red and watering when he gave me his reply one day. He said, I'm not going to be able to do this entirely. I have to stand like he, he does, but I won't be able to do it entirely with this microphone. But he always stood with his hands on his hips, you know, and he had a little pot belly here. I'm sorry, man, but I have to tell you, tell them about you. And he kind of stood like this, you know, and go, if you give it too much thought, our survival sightings have nothing and everything to do with survival. That's why we don't speak when we look at the tree. We just look. We don't think about it. Use what comes naturally, Nikki. If you're ever stuck on something, don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. Feel it! You'll need this someday, Nikki. Now those were his, I remember those words. You'll need this someday, Nikki. And then with a smirk on his face, he would say to me, besides, now that my eyesight is failing, it's for my survival that you see these things. <laughs> Before my grandfather died at age 96, I had used the survival sighting technique many, many times. And I was always quite amazed how simple it was. And when I tell other people about it, they'd, they'd undoubtedly say, ah, that's common knowledge. And then they go on for an hour telling me about this problem they had and how confused they were and they didn't know what to do. You know, and so whenever I was confused or faced with one of those life-pressing problems, I could always find a tree somewhere and figure it all out. Trees make good therapists, <laughs> and also great healers. It was in January 1994 that I was given my biggest test on survival sighting. Upon waking up from surgery, 
I was told that the fibroid that was supposed to be removed turned out to be an 11-pound cancerous ovarian tumor. The first thought that came to my mind was, no wonder I had a back problem. For two years, I had suffered with a terrible back problem that caused me pain 24 hours a day. I was barely able to walk by that time. When I walked, I, I was literally just walking with a cane into surgery. For those two years, none of the doctors ever connected the back pain with the tumor that was growing continuously on my ovary. Hearing the news of the cancer sent fear running through every part of my body. But it was within 15 minutes, Grandpa was with me, that my survival sighting technique kicked in and came to my rescue. Not being able to get up from my bed and find myself a tree, the tree came to me in my mind. Before the surgery, I was living the life my grandfather would have loved. I was a professional artist. My medium was wood sculpture. And every day I hiked the hills on the, of the ranch I, on the ranch I live on in the Napa Valley, and I brought home treasures, either tangible treasures or some that were in my mind. For 10 years, I had walked my talk and sighted the same trees over and over again. But my grandfather was right. I was the luckiest person in the whole world because depending on the light or the rain or the season, those trees always look different. Most of the trees I work with are the manzanita and in the Napa Valley where I live, they are monstrous. And they're incredibly red and very, very sensual. I lost my place. <laughs> Offering, they offered someone a catalog of animals in each tree. And that's what we used to do. We used to spend the time just looking at these trees and seeing all those animals. Lying in that hospital bed, I called on those beautiful trees to take my fear away. In my mind, I walked that familiar path, stopping to gaze at my favorite trees, not thinking anything, just looking. And I was truly survival sighting at its best, just laying there in the hospital. Throughout the five days I was there, the fear returned, and many times it took tremendous effort to retrieve the picture back into my mind. At times like these, I, I knew I would have to beef up my survival sighting technique. My mind was being outflanked by fear. I started to create my sculptures. I pictured myself cutting the tree, carrying it home, and working on it. Well, that worked for a while. And when I felt the fear seeping back in, I knew I had to create a new scenario. I had to carve something in my mind. I had to imagine my hands with the carving tool and the mallet. I had to envision the manzanita chips flying off of the piece. And I had to picture a form being created right in front of me. Well, I stuttered and stopped many times and had to begin again. But you know, soon I got the hang of it and the chips were flying. I was carving in my mind. 
Lisa. <laughs> Anthony. <laughs> oh, there he is. There he is. Now that's how Harley was created. That's Harley. Harley's about five and a half feet tall, and he's got a Manzanita motorcycle and a real Harley Davidson exhaust pipe. <laughs> I imaged the completed Harley, and my, as my grandpa would say, I felt it strongly. Harley, to me, was my ride out of this joint. And he would take me on his motorcycle, and with my American Express card, we were going to go real far. <laughs> I next created Harvey. In the Jimmy Stewart movie called Harvey, Stewart's character is at first the only one to see Harvey. So I thought that was appropriate. Harvey's about five and a half feet tall also, and that's a manzanita chair that he's sitting in. Very distinguished. He now sits in my house and pays my bills. <laughs> he's been there a long time, bank bill. Next came Maurice, and I'll show you a slide of Maurice here. And then... Here he is in person. Maurice lives here in, in Los Altos with my friends Betsy and Alan Parker. Turn the lights down now, Anthony. I also had uh, Wolfgang there to help me out too. Whoop. Well, thank you. Many animals followed. This is Jerome. Jerome is not exactly an animal, but this is about the way that I think we all feel. And here's another escape. That's uh, Roy's Red Roadster, and I just thought after a Harley's motorcycle broke down, I could hop in the Roadster and get out of here. So many animals followed, and at times I would find myself annoyed when someone actually came into my room and wanted to talk with me. You know, even through the terrific abdominal pain, I found myself at peace and actually smiling a lot, much to the bewilderment of the nurses. Survival sighting was my first aid, and I used it while talking with my oncologist about my prognosis. According to him, the prognosis was not good. Stage 3B, carcinoma, non-differentiated tumor. Well, uh, you know. <laughs> He 
was advising one year of chemotherapy when I created Buddy the Blues Frog in my mind. <laughs> I thought I might need a little rock and roll about that time, you know? This Jerry Lee Lewis replica and frog form fitted perfectly. <laughs> my oncologist words were lost in the beat of the music Buddy played in my head, and that's damn where well they stayed. Harley did take me out of that joint, and we traveled together down to Livingston Medical Institute in San Diego and stayed two weeks doing alternative medicine. The psychologist there told me I had such high ideals and big ambitions that might have helped save my life. That night I created Boris. <laughs> Boris is a giraffe. The giraffe is the totem for people with high ideals and big ambitions. <laughs> I have lots of giraffes in my house. You ought to get yourself a few. When I did return to carving in real life, or as people who have not had cancer say, dealing with reality, I took what I had in my mind and I went to work. This was Zen. This was the ultimate. At times, as time went on, I still had a lot of physical healing to do, but I never felt better. And occasionally I would have a conversation with someone and they would tell me about their aunt who died of the exact same thing. <laughs> Or I would read an article on cancer and I would question mine and my grandfather's wisdom. Well, those times never would last too long as I learned to associate my fear and my doubt with a new carved animal. Survival sighting is really nothing new. Some people call it meditation, visualization, whatever you want to call it. I need to tell you, it may save your life. Thank you very much.
Uh, my name is Jean Bolin, and <laughs> and three years ago, Jan Adrian asked me if I would be willing to participate in a vision she had to have a conference for women who were surviving breast cancer that she planned to call Cancer as a Turning Point. And I said yes. And that was how I first had the experience of speaking before. At the, that was the first conference with 280 women, most of whom were surviving cancer and who made me feel like a civilian with people who have made it through a major heroic ordeal. And I've watched Jan, with her own breast cancer and her own vision, move through that first triumphant one, with 280 of us present, to taking the show on the road so that this is the sixth one. And along the way, there was one in Orange County that had only about 60 women or 65 women. And the last one in Sacramento, because there were other women who helped her do that one, it was, it was more of a success. But all along the way, there was debt, and there was depletion, and there was still division. And there was energy to go one more round to have this one at Stanford. And she approached the idea of having it at Stanford and found that she could get the space, donated space, provided that she didn't charge anybody anything. And so at a point where she had taken the show on the road, and this was the sixth one, and she was personally in debt, she had proposed to her that she could have a conference at Stanford if she got foundation money and other donations to get it moving and have it happen. And if we could all come as participants with no charge, in that process, every speaker, every musician, everyone here agreed to be a volunteer because Jan was a volunteer all along, and now we joined her. And then there was the invitation to you all to come to this with no charge. And we had a space that would hold 600. And three weeks after the invitation went out, Jan had 825 registrants. And people said, but I registered, but the, the person I need to drive me here didn't register in time, and so on. And so Jan, who has a business of her own, and employees of her own, and her health to look out for, made another step to see if it was possible to have a larger space. And the largest space on this campus is this one, and it was, it was available for one day, not two, and there were things that had to happen that had to do with, with grace and volunteers and guardian angels and a whole bunch of other things that came out in part always because of a commitment that Jan had to do this. And in the process of doing this, this has happened. Uh, it's really much, very much like a field of dreams. If Jan and the volunteers who have been part of this will build it, you will come, and you have.
So what I am suggesting is that in terms of volunteering in general, that you all consider a donation of money as well as energy to healing journeys, cancer is a turning point, so that this particular vision can get out of debt and keep on going. Is an envelope in your multicolor, whatever color folder you have with healing journeys on it. You can put something in it, check money, you can put it in the basket in the back. You could also think about it in terms of others that might have the resources to make a major uh, contribution to this particular cause. Most of you here are surviving cancer. You're in a full-time curriculum at what could be called Cancer U. You have tests regularly, examinations regularly, and it is a full-time curriculum for most of you. And most of you have used up a considerable amount of your resources across the board. So I don't know in this audience that very many of you have very much to contribute. Some of you may. Some of you may be able to afford a very large contribution. Others of you may not. But maybe you do know, if you think about it, other people who would, if you ask them, because this makes a difference for you, that to fund it so it will continue on, that it would be a worthy contribution. Maybe you could think of others who you might ask to contribute, so that it isn't always just Jan who says, can you contribute pounds and pounds of tofu? Can you speak at the next conference? Jan has been out there asking for all of us so this could happen. And I asked her if I could make this pitch because I didn't think that she could speak to sit in such a way to, to carry what it is that she has done. Because I know Jan. I've seen Jan speak before. She almost did not make time for this pitch. So I would like you to think about making a donation today and putting it in the basket right outside. And also thinking about others, uh, making it a check or making it cash today or tomorrow to keep the vision going, to give your energy, to give your prayers, and whatever resources that you have to keep the journey going for more women so that there will be more fields to be built and more of us who will come. Thanks.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.